Whether we listen with aloof amusement to the dreamlike mumbo-jumbo of some red-eyed witch doctor of the Congo, or read with cultivated rapture thin translations from the sonnets of the mystic Lao Tse, now and again crack the hard nutshell of an argument of Aquinas, or catch suddenly the shining meeting of a bizarre Eskimo fairy tale, it will be always the one shape-shifting yet marvelously constant story that we find, together with a challengingly persistent suggestion of more remaining to be experienced than will ever be known or told. Good morning, I'm Douglas Bowles and this is 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and thesyncbook.com. A weekly conversation with the interesting artists and thinkers of our day. Before we begin with today's episode, we need to take a minute and remind you about the upcoming SYNC event that's happening in Berkeley, California, Saturday, October 26th at the Monkey House. If you are in the area, this is a great chance to get into SYNC. Look for more details at thesyncbook.com events and plan on attending. Today is episode number 106, and this morning is the 15th day of October, where we continue our themed month of shows in which we explore our humanness by way of our head and our heart. So far we've considered our consciousness with Richard Grossinger and our relationship to time with Douglas Rushkoff. Yet today we'll examine our connection to the story and the power of myth. Furthermore, we have not even to risk the adventure alone, for the heroes of all time have gone before us. The labyrinth is fully known. We have only to follow the thread of the hero path. And where we had thought to find an abomination, we shall find a god. Where we thought to slay another, we shall slay ourselves. Where we had thought to travel outward, we shall come to the center of our own existence. And where we thought to be alone, we shall be with all the world. Good morning. I'm Will Morgan, and on 40 minute, or 42 minutes today, we will be speaking with Bob Walter, Executive Director and Board President of the Joseph Campbell Foundation, an organization that he helped found in 1990 with Joseph Campbell's widow. The foundation was incorporated in order to preserve, protect, and perpetuate the work of Joseph Campbell. Further, his pioneering work in mythology and comparative religion and to help individuals enrich their lives by participating. Prior to his work in publishing, Walter was a founding faculty at the California Institute of Arts, lectured widely on experimental education, and pursued a professional theater career, working for a decade as a director, production manager, and playwright. Bob was a founding trustee of the United Religions Initiative and served that organization as treasurer and as a member of the Global Council. You can find him speaking about Joseph Campbell and myth in the films Finding Joe and Mystic Journeys, or Mythic Journeys, is it? It's Mythic Journeys, isn't it? Mythic Journeys. Well, welcome. Thanks for joining us today. It's quite my pleasure. Great. You guys have been on an exploration here for several weeks now, yes? Yes. And so, you know, the idea of what makes us human, and and naturally we have to talk about the story. Absolutely. I mean, sto story um, is one way of, of talking about 
the fact that the uniqueness of the human animal is that we're a myth-making machine um, or a meaning-making machine. Uh, in other words, we, we, we process random experiences and uh, directed experiences and you know, vicarious experiences, and, and from them we're always seeking meaning. And the way that meaning most encodes itself in our brain, we know from cognitive research, is by way of story. And in fact, that's what all the ancient myths tell us. I mean, a great example is, is, is the, one of the oldest stories that's come down to us, the myth of Gilgamesh. And after the hero Gilgamesh has had all these adventures in, uh, while out seeking the elixir of eternal youth, he, he finally gets it and he comes to a, a pool and he's been up for days and he bathes in the pool and while he's bathing, uh, a snake comes along and, and, and eats the elixir. Uh, but Gilgamesh still goes back to his home. Um, he doesn't go back with a thing. Um, he doesn't go back with elixir in his hand. What he goes back with is the story. Uh, and we turn to stories because stories are more interesting than facts. Um, it's a way to encode experience. They've done all kinds of, um, of, of various experiments when, where they, for example, presented subjects with uh, bullet lists and outlines and fact sheets and other ways of um, remembering items. Um, and then they've also presented them with stories in which those same items occur. And inevitably, every time, the, most imp the, the way that um, remembrance is, 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 is highest is, is by way of the story. Um, and myths Mnemonic and device are our deepest kind of. stories. So, yeah, we, you can't escape the fact that stories are, are how we weave, um, you know, uh, make sense of our lives from generation to generation and within an individual life. So then, what is a myth? Well, you know, there's been a lots of different definitions. Uh, I, I think that, that a good way to, th to think about them, though, is to go to the four essential qualities um, that a story we would call a myth always has. Um, Joe, Joe Campbell used to always talk about the four functions of a myth, and in a sense he was coming to that. He, he would talk about the four functions of a myth are first and primarily to infuse every aspect of our existence with a mystical um, awareness, so, so the, everything we do is alive and meaningful. Um, and the second is that second function is to provide us with a, a, an image of the cosmos um, in which, our, uh, which we live, and the the, the third function would be a sociological function to help us find our way in a society and our place in, you know, amongst the human community. And, and the fourth would be a psychological function uh, to tell us where we are on our own life journey. Um, and, and, you know, it's a little difficult, I think, for people today to really grasp that. If you lived in the Renaissance, Europe, for example, where everything was wound into the Christian mythology, uh, that would be obvious to you. Uh, if you lived in a tribe where you had no outside influences, again, everything would resonate like that. For us today, I think the way to think about it, though, is a myth then is a story that, that connects us in those ways. So reversing the order, um, it connects us psychologically to who we are in our life journey. And in that sense, we can read all the myths and, and find meaning because the human condition the human animal hasn't changed significantly in the 30,000 years or so that we've recorded our existence on this planet. Um, and the second function, then, 
or the second way a myth connects us would be sociologically. So if you're really, you know, centered in yourself, you know who you are, well, you still have to go out into the world and make sense of it. Um, if, if, if you have a story that is only meaningful to you, we don't really call that a myth. We, we call that psychosis. Um, <laughs> yeah. But if you've got a story, um, if your own sense of who you are and, and how you function in society finds a resonance in the community around you, then, you know, you're connected sociologically. Now, that's more and more challenging these days because the sociological forms that we used to think of, the tribe, the, you know, the nuclear family, um, those break down. The, 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 the arbitrary, you know, geographical boundaries of nations and nation states, those have broken down. Um, the, you know, so the globe, Campbell would say now, is, is really the only society that matters. And you have to be both uh, a member of your local society, your local tribe, your local community, and a member of the global society. But, but if you can achieve that tenuous balance and be, feel, find yourself connected sociologically, then you move to the next level in, in your stories, in the stories that matter, and that is what's the image of the cosmos that's presented. And in this case, Joe would say there's nothing wrong with the mythologies of 2,000 years ago, but there's everything wrong with their cosmologies. And so if you look at the dominant mythologies, which I would say parenthetically for many people are the dominant religions. I mean, Joe would say um, a myth is another person's religion, or he would say religion is misunderstood mythology. It's misunderstood because the metaphors in the, in the stories are taken literally. But we'll set that consideration aside and just say for a moment that the cosmos as we see it today is radically different from the cosmos as envisioned 2,000 years ago. Um, we, we no longer have a Newtonian universe where, where cause uh, and effect are obvious. In fact, we have this, this, this sea of energy, as nuclear physicists would, would talk about energy that exists and, and doesn't become matter until it's observed. It, it's a very different cosmological vision on the microcosm and we look up we don't see heaven uh, above we see this infinity of of stars and space uh, so, so 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 many of the old mythologies really break down when they come up against the cosmos um, but assume for a moment that you have constructed uh, your own um, enriched mythological life story and your vision of the cosmos is one that empowers you i mean the idea that that vastness and that you know immenseness is, is out there but it's also comprehensible in your mind it's comprehensible in our mind in such a way that we can send a rocket up and know the laws by which it's going to land on the moon or mars uh, if, if that's an empowering vision as opposed to an overwhelming vision you know i'm so tiny under this great this great universe Assume for a moment, though, that it, you, know, you, you have the more positive perspective. Now you're connected psychologically, you're connected sociologically, your story is connecting you cosmologically. And I rather liken it then to a, one of those old-fashioned slot machines where you, you've suddenly got three cherries and all the gold coins come out. And, and what, what do I mean? Well, I mean when you're connected to yourself and your own story, your own mythology, psychologically, sociologically, and cosmologically, the world is alive for you. Everything has meaning. You're, the, you know, you're at the center of it. Everything is vibrant. And that's the mystical experience, which, you know, that's the transcendent experience that we get in glimpses and moments, and, and we strive continuously, I think, to recapture. Well, it seems like 
the myth making that's happening you know so the cosmological function of a complete mythology this is being handled by you know the, our priests at, at scientific materialism and so they're going out and finding uh, the nature of reality but then the sociological and psychological functions are kind of being handled by Hollywood so you know who's in the tribe and what it is to be you know what are the stages of growing up in you know as a person right now it seems like the myth making that we really are inculcated by happen you know at the movies on some level well you know i mean i think that's the case unfortunately for far too many people where they cede their own imagination and their own and their own heroism if you will to iconic figures that appear on television films and you know on the covers of the tabloids by the checkout stand but but in fact there's a counter movement to that too in in terms of the various uh, various you know uh Various attempts in, in in different in different fields to call forth, you know, um, heroes who fly under the radar to to recognize in in activities of people who who go off a beaten track the fact that they're actually pursuing an individual path that nine times out of ten, you know, lifts them past those you know constructed persona of of the media. Um, I, I think, in terms of you think about a, you know, um, anywhere from an Albert Einstein to a Mother Teresa, these are folks who, who went their own way. They, they, they weren't busy living their lives vicariously through television and, uh, you know, and and movies. Um, televisions and movies do attempt to grasp this on a, on a meta level, on a bigger level, but 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 all too often what happens is is it throws up individuals that that are so far removed from the the, the regular person's day to day that they can't really see a sense of identification there's a kind of maybe a sense of hero worship or a sense of you know awe like we 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 you know well in, in medieval times again to go back to or medieval or to 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 uh, renaissance times you know you had patron saints well you emulated the patron saints. You didn't dare to think that you were one of them. But mythology tells us you are. You know, you are that hero. Um, you resonate with that hero because that hero is in you. That story you hear touches you because it, it's in you. Um, there's a disconnect that, that's happened an awful lot, I think, in contemporary media where we we, we put those figures out there and, and we sort of hold them up, you know, as icons. Um, and and that's not really that's not really heroic action that that's idol worship. Well, that that's an interesting. Uh, uh, what about the the use of myth on a nefarious level through advertisement or to propagate like the religion of state? Well, absolutely, it's used like that. Um, you know, uh, advertising's really really good at, at understanding how to connect with a person on those di- different levels. How to say, hey, you know, if you buy this deodorant. You know, you're going to really be a much better person. And you know what? If you're a much better person, you're going to fit into your society a whole lot better. And those those women are going to come and swarm around you. And, you know, hey, if all those women come and swarm around you, who knows? You're going to be a famous celebrity. And, I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it, feeds off of, it feeds off of our desire to have those connections. Um, and, and, yes, mythology can be horribly manipulated. All we have to do is look back at... at um, 
you know, at, at, at how the Nazis took the whole heritage of Germanic mythology and turned it toward nefarious ends. Um, there's no question that that can happen. And, and in fact, that is what happens when, when individuals seed, you know, their own sense of who they are and identity to a, to a, a third party out there, whether that's a, a movie star or a demo, de, you know, a demigod who, who just, you know, uh, manipulates them. Um, uh, and frequently by, I might say, it's frequently by saying you're different than the others. Huh. Speaking of uh, nefarious third parties, um, do you know, do you know the story of, of the heart of the monster? Um, I, I, I'm not part of the monster story you're referring to. Which one are you talking? What are you? Oh, I'm sorry. The Nez Perce origin myth. Uh, I, I do. I'm a familiar with it. And your reference though to it is. Okay. So well, real fast for our listeners, um, the Nez Perce origin myth, you know, uh, has a monster swallowing everything up, all the animals, and then uh, Coyote finds out about this, you know, like, what's going on? And, you know, he's like, uh, he, he talks to one of the animals, and they say, oh, everything's getting swallowed by this monster. And so it, Coyote takes it upon himself to, you know, save creation. So he gets swallowed up by the monster intentionally and part of the story uh locates the tribe in geographic space so he creates he fashions a way of getting swallowed that incorporates the the sacred mountains into the myth but um once inside he starts encountering other animals and he uh has a relationship with them in such a way that changes their nature and makes them what they are and i think that's pretty common in, in creation or you know origin myths where it defines how things become what they are, but the coyote, the trickster, is the one who's kind of causing them to become themselves. But anyway, so once inside the monster, he uh, you know begins freeing all the prisoners, um, and then eventually cuts the monster's heart out and cooks it, and then all the all the other animals flee, and then he spreads the different pieces of the monster out, and those different pieces become the various tribes in the central Idaho area and uh, Pacific Northwest, and then eventually the heart itself, which becomes this geological feature that you can go to near Kamii, Idaho, um, is the the birthplace of the, the Nimipu, which are the Nez Perce. And so this is a really specific local myth, you know, where the tribe can say, this is where we come from, and all that. But then... What's really fascinating to me now is that it's taken on this universal quality, and this is where I'm actually going with this, is so that the Canadian tar sands is this corporate entity thing that's sucking up all the environment by grinding up the earth and turning it into oil. Um, but to get the chunks that they need to do this, all this Mordor-like destruction of the these beautiful Canadian... Uh, boreal forests, you have these things called megaloads that, trans, uh, that travel from either China or Korea, wherever they're being manufactured whole, and then you have these huge uh, industrial components that they're barging up up the, the river to Lewiston, and then they put them on trucks and try and transfer them through up Heavenly Highway 12, past the heart of the monster, you know, through Montana into Canada, because that's the cheapest way for this corporation to do it. But so it's just amazing to me that the, 
that you have this local myth that transcends its local place and, and eventually in, and encapsulates this universal principle of can you speak to that? I, I know just well. Yeah, actually, I can. But you know, I want to turn it around on its head because actually, the, the myth is expression of a that myth is an expression of a more universal story. Um, you, you're you're taking um, their rendition of the of that of that more universal story, and I'll back up in a minute and explain what I mean. Sure. Um, and applying it to a contemporary situation um, is 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 useful but but it misses a few things too um f first of all um y you need to recognize that that e you know that well let me say it's a universal creation myth in the sense that there is an undifferentiated something held in the in, in held in in the thrall of something else um so in this okay. there's an undifferentiated state of humanity if you will swallowed inside this monster and a monster has a lot of metaphoric meanings in different traditions. And it becomes the trickster's job um, to upset the, the order the, the way it is and to then create a new order. I mean, that's what the trickster always does. But the trickster is an embodiment of the forces that do that. And so now let's take and look at how that myth happened. That myth, the origin of that myth in this particular use was really in the southeast. And it was four sacred lakes, not four sacred mountains. But when the, the tribes were moved on the Trail of Tears to the southwest, they did what every um, people need to do to keep a mythology alive, and that is they, they landed it in the, the, they grounded it in the landscape. So the four sacred lakes of the southeast became the four mountains. And in that they needed, in that story, what that story is doing is it's saying, how did the world come to be where there is us and others, but in fact, underneath it, we're the same? So they were one of many tribes, I mean, to take the historical context here, that were displaced. But when they were displaced to this other place, they took their stories and applied them there. And out of that story, Coyote became the trickster. We're not really clear what the trickster was in, in, in the South East, it may well have been a, a snake because that's frequently a trickster figure in, in those areas. But at any rate, here they are now, and now they're saying, here we are, and here are all the peoples of the earth. And underneath the story, what they're saying is we come from the same place. But our trickster went in and brought us out and named, made us different or special or carved out the society that we know. Now, that that's a whole big metaphor for that encompasses both um, their their identity as a people, the story of how their of how creation of which they're a part came to be, and how they became a tribal entity within this diversity of of, of creatures and things. You can take that same kind of metaphor, I suppose, and and look at it in the contemporary landscape. But the issue is, you got to be careful that we don't we don't start to get literal about it in other words you know the the you know metaphorically the megalodes and all these other things can be seen as the monsters and so on um but if we make that a literal thing we we miss the larger point here um the, the more apt story there might have to do with various stories in terms of which landscape is destroyed and the landscape itself has the meaning just like the, it would be as if the as if the 
the the story had talked about the monster coming out and then tearing down the four sacred mountains, and that's not actually what you know how that story goes. But there are other stories in in several traditions that would talk about um, forces coming in and destroying um, what was sacred and what was the landscape, um, and and those might be better metaphors to to, to address you know what's going on with the Tarzans from from my perspective. Um, which isn't to say that your that your your spinning out of that story doesn't have resonance because it does, um, but I think it's important that we understand where it came from in terms of the experience of the people whose story it is, um, before mm-hmm. we start to take their story and see how it applies to our story. Hmm. Sorry to throw that curve at you. Oh no, that, that's that's. <laughs> <laughs> but see, that is the that is the issue. The thing is, and this and this is this is true. Um, it, it, we can use other people's stories to illuminate our own situation, but we risk the we always risk the the issue of when we take it out of the context. If we remove it too far from the context, we, we really sort of desoul it. Um, we, we lose the resonance that it had originally. Um, it, it may be a, a darn good <laughs> additional story, um, but how close it is to the intent of the original story is is, an, is another question. I, I suppose I guess one of the reasons why my my brain um, are are it seems like capitalism is kind of at odds with our environment on some level. Just the, the our the our operating system seems to be some kind of monster that or a machine that we've turned on that we can't necessarily regulate anymore or something to that yeah well there 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 certainly there certainly is that 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 sense um and and I think if you know if you look at sort of some popular you know inceptions of of, of um you know various of, 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 of say of the hero's journey particularly. Um, and and what's what's running around in my mind is, is Star Wars. Where, where yeah, I've got that so, too, because you've got the Death know, Star, and it's the Empire, and how do we? Right. Yeah, yeah. But you see, th- that's one reading of it. I mean, the the, the point is, in in that story, we, we've taken and we've, you know, we've we've um, put into the context there, you know, this 21st century, you know, machine um, that that that's gone out of control, and 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 the the underlying argument there is. Um, is that the technology has escaped the master, if you will. It's, it's Frankenstein. Uh, it's a story that's been around for a long time. And, and there is no doubt truth in it. And there may well be more truth in it than, than I'm even acknowledging uh, at the moment. But, but what, what I think is important here, too, is to recognize that the, 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 the technology itself is an extension of the senses of man. And, and we can go back and see all kinds of stories I mean, all kinds of traditions where a new technology comes in and it suddenly becomes the enemy because it upsets the entire way of life. And, and that certainly has happened on a grand scale um, in human history. Uh, when, when different inventions, be they bows and arrows um, uh, or, or guns, I mean, dynamite, guns, dynamite, you know, I mean, you come along, each of these things has totally disrupted. Now, any one of those tools can also be used for good. Um, but the idea is that 
uh, or the fear is always that, 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 that the power of the technology will corrupt the soul of the individual. We've got Faust there, you know, in, in that story. So we have a lot of stories about this. We have a, a number of stories, but perhaps not as many, about where man, um, you, you know, seizes the technology and uses it for good. Um, in many cases, I'm thinking Prometheus finds yeah. fire. He's punished for it, okay? But the fire, he brings the fire back to mankind and it helps. So I, I think it's important when we, when we have, um, when we bring up the mythologies about, you know, rampant technology and, and, and personify it in, in the stories that, that we recognize that, that, that this is a picture, but it's not necessarily implicitly the entire picture or the only picture. Um, you know, there's two sides to every coin. Uh, and, and, and the big thing is that the mythologies chart the changes. So when there are significant technological changes, they are totally disruptive. Now, uh, again, I, I'm thinking nuclear energy here. I mean, nuclear energy has been used, can be used for, for you know, to create power that serves mankind. It can be used for, in medicine. It can be used in all kinds of other very great ways. And it can also be used to destroy us. And that's the power of great technology. And, 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 and we have as a species, uh, you know, upped the threshold. I mean, we're at a point now where you can't mess around with it. The, the thing that's, looping back for a second, though, he, he, here's, the, here's the interesting thing. In most of the traditional mythologies, that disruptive force that we're, we're grappling with now, um, and that we're, you know, it, it, is the trickster, is Coyote. I mean, in, in the story we talked about earlier. I mean, Coyote comes in and you know, blows up this monster, does this whole thing. He creates, you know, he, he creates life, but in creating life, he creates the me, the us, and the others. Um, and, and on one sense, that's good. He's created all life. But in another sense, in his doing it, he's drawn a line, a distinction between us, our people, and the other people. Now, that's a good differentiation in some sense, but it also leads to, you know, the kind of tribal enmity that's it's going on. It's going on all over the globe. So then, how? So, <laughs> then so that, we haven't found in others. What I'm saying is, how do you do not, that? How do you come up with the the globe's origin myth? <laughs> well, and what is I the sacred know. mountain from which to you know? To, uh, it seems like most myths well, nowadays Elf, talk about Black the end Elf of the says, world, not the beginning. Black Elf has it, says it this. You know, he says he takes him to the top of the mountain, and he says, you know. Here, here's the sacred mountain, the center of the world. The center of the world is Harney Peak. But then he says, but the center of the world is everywhere. Right. So, so, so that's the recognition. In other words, the recognition is that, yes, for me, <clears throat> for my people, for who I am right now, you know, this is the center. But it's also this. Um, you know, it, 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 in other words, it, we think in either or. Mythology's both and. Everything's both and. You know, trickster's both good and bad. You know, uh, yes, it's it's the end, but it's also a beginning. Uh, it's just it. We have this binary way of of approaching things, and that's very different than the way mythology approaches things. Do you? And this binary way of approaching things. Do you think this is? I, I think I've read somewhere that that's where our consciousness actually comes from by defining, separating ourselves from. Sure. Yep. And so yeah, that's it's, it's, a necessary a part not of. A. Yeah. For our yep. humanity's sake, we're going to have that as part of our operating system. 
Correct. But we also have to recognize that that's not the only metric. Right. And there, in other words, you... you know, I'm, 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 I'm both, I'm a, both a human being and a male. Okay. <laughs> I'm both, I'm both a human male of a certain age. And, you know, I mean, you, you can, you, you can always lift yourself up and, 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 and how are we going to get to that, that mythology? I think it's by doing that. I mean, it's by saying something like, you know, it's by recognizing who I am, but rec- you know, and, and what makes me distinct. But on the other hand, even as I do that, I'm recognizing what makes me the same as you and everybody else. And when I'm talking about, well, when I've talked and given lectures in, in Latin America, it's fun because they say, how many people here are Americans? And no hands go up. <laughs> and they say, wait a minute, <clears throat> aren't we in South America? You know, I, I learned my geography. These were the Americas, North America, South America, Middle America. So aren't we all Americans? And there's this sort of begrudging shrug. <laughs> and then I say, you know, and then I say, well, you know, uh, it, this is great, particularly uh, in, in, in Brazil, because they're Portuguese. And I say, well, you know, um, so how many of you are Latin Americans? Well, not really. We're Portuguese. Uh, so, so there's this necessity on a social level, too, to think of ourselves as being, you know, a citizen of the state of California, but you're also an American. But you're, you're, well, you're, you're a North American, yeah, but you're also a member of Americas, the Americas, the Western Hemisphere. But you're not just a member of the Western Hemisphere, you're, you're a human being on this planet. So in other words, there's, there's, there's always the opening out, there's always the both this and that. Now, I, I alluded to it earlier. I said, you know, the, hey, this vast cosmos, if we take it to that level, I can be both totally insignificant in, in the realm of this cosmos and looking at my situation or any human situation, it's true. But if you flip it around the other way and say, wait a minute, this lonely, insignificant human being can carry within his brain you know, this entire image of the cosmos and all the laws and physics that, that we seem to think govern it, um, is it out there or is it in here? The answer is yes, both, both. You see, until so each of these cases, it's both and. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's back up a little bit. And and so how <laughs> <laughs> how did you how did you meet Joseph Campbell and end up working with him? And you know, tell us about the foundation. Okay. Well, I met Joe in the late '70s. Actually, met him in the early '70s. Uh, when I was teaching in, at CalArts and doing some lecturing on experiential education, and I met him through the president of Sarah Lawrence at that time, Harold Taylor, and then I stayed in touch with him through the 70s in New York. Um, and then through a ser- strange series of serendipity, my wife began to work with his wife at the Theater of the Open Eye. Now, I was running another theater at the time, and then uh, Joe's uh, had been working for a while on this project called the Historical Atlas of World Mythology, which was being built in at a, uh, being put together at a studio in Switzerland, and the then publisher closed down the studio, and they were in a dilemma as to how to proceed. Uh, Joe was going on a lecture tour, um, and uh, we'd we'd all gone out for dinner one night. Uh, his wife and uh, Joe and myself and my wife and the then publisher from McGraw Hill and his wife. And the long and the short of it is, I I volunteered to to receive all this material from Switzerland and put it in our second bedroom and, you know, try to make some sense of what was going to be shipped back and get it all ready for when uh, Joe came back off his lecture tour for them to go make their book. Um, But when he came back, um, nobody was interested in the book, and we spent two, three, three and a half years trying to figure out 
proceeding to develop this opus, which was originally one volume and then became two volumes and then became four volumes, and they came four volumes in multiple parts and kept growing. Um, as I guess as humankind's one great story grew, which is what he dubbed this work. Um, and we ended up having to start a publishing company because no one would publish him. And we, we did that, and then we couldn't get anybody to distribute us. And finally we did. That was about a four-year adventure during which um, Fred Vandermark, our, our, uh, the man whose publishing company was named after, Joe and I, just went on doing this book. And um, we published it, and uh, he, he had a, a bit of a success again, and his name came up some more, and then uh, I kept working with him, and uh, the publishing company kept going. Uh, we got uh, Joe and Bill Moyers together just to have some conversations. Uh, we didn't know where that was going, and they had a few of those over a few years, and then Joe died. It was like bang, bang, bang. And uh, I guess it shouldn't have surprised us he was in his 80s, but you know, he gave no in, in indication of mortality, and, uh, and we, we worked on. So, you know, uh, and uh, six months later, um, so Bill immediately on the heels of this went into production with Power of Myth, and it aired six months later, and there was this posthumous celebrity. I, meanwhile, wound down the publishing company um, and sold off the Atlas to, to HarperCollins with the condition that I would complete at least five parts of it, um, and I did. And uh, and then um, in the midst of all of this, in the midst of this posthumous celebrity, there was um, all this jockeying back and forth over um, <laughs> we said that it appeared that he had written more blurbs for more people's books in the last three months of his life than he'd written in his entire earlier career. Because suddenly all these testimonials and things were coming forward. And uh, his widow and I realized that, that this author who had died with royalties of $6,000 and nobody publishing him was had become a phenomenon. And people were showing up on her doorstep and people were, you know, anything that had Joe's name attached to it suddenly had value. Uh, I had been named his literary executor, so with his widow, we decided the thing to do was to create an institution um, to take custodianship of the of the work, and uh, and and that's how the foundation came to be. And, part and, and initially, initially, I mean, the irony here too is that even then we thought the foundation would just, you know, sort of do his custodial work. We never thought that that, that Joe would become a, a household name or that. You know, it would become, in a sense, a brand, or that we would have, you know, hundred plus thousand Facebook friends, or, or who even knew from Facebook, but you know, or, or all these people on the, you know, on, a, you know, who were associates through the website, jcf.org. I mean, who knew from the website at that point? So it really has just been watching the way uh, his conversation with Bill and his work. Um, going all the way back to here with a thousand faces because we mustn't forget that he wrote that in 1949 but it made the new york times bestsellers list in 1988 <laughs> so wow. yeah. you know it it, it 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 was this phenomenon that caught on and 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 i think he would be eternally grateful and and amazed he, i mean when when we were working on the atlas and and i mean nobody was making any money we, we took mortgages on our houses to, to to support this company to keep going um I said to him one day, Joe, doesn't this frustrate you? I mean, you did all this great work, and then you hit this point, and nobody's publishing you, and then we do it on ourselves, and nobody seems interested. 
And he said, I, he said, once upon a time, you know, it would have bothered me, but a long, a long time ago I said, you know, I'm going to do the work because the work matters, and if it affects one human being, it will have been worth it. Right. And <laughs> you know, I look now purpose. and I think, well, man, it really was worth it, <laughs> and then some. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> but it's, 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 a, it's, it's a, I think, a real important lesson because, I mean, during all of this, you know, his entire life, I mean, Joe lived in a, uh, in a one-bedroom, a little studio, one-bedroom apartment, about 600 square feet in Greenwich Village. Uh, his, his, uh, the bedroom was his office. Uh, they, 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 the couch in the living room was a double bed. It was also their bed. They didn't have room for a dining room table. He and his wife, they, they took a, a card table out and opened it up to have meals. Um, you know, his focus was always on the work, and um, and even through the times when, of obscurity. And um, and penury. I mean, people, I think it's a really instructive lesson for so many people who are pursuing, you know, their own dreams, um, and 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 think that there must be some magic wand by which you suddenly vaulted to, you know, no, you know, you you keep doing it, and uh, and hopefully, you know, you're, you're you're the world, the world, and you you come into sync, and that's really what happened with Joe. Huh. Wow. Well, uh, we, we once got... again you dumbfound us. <laughs> <laughs> Say again. I said once again you have dumbfound us. <laughs> well, well, you it... know, it's it it, it, it it's I, I I I don't mean to throw you too many curves, but I think it, these are important things to realize. Is that is is you know that 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 you don't see the end of the road when you start out on the journey. You know, Joe's favorite expression was from the. Um, you know, from from the Arthurian romances, was each night enters the forest where it's darkest and there was no path, because to go in the forest on a path would be to follow someone else's path, and mm-hmm. all the tremendous breakthroughs that we know um, we know of in in human experience come from people who've been willing to do that, have been willing to go into the forest where there was no path, risk ridicule, you know, leave behind the things that everybody else valued, and and go forward because they had to, because they sensed even though some, everybody else didn't, that something was wrong, something was missing where they were. And they went out to try to, you know, they went out to try to fix it, to try to, you know, find yeah. whatever it was that, that their their society needed. Thank you. That's 42 Minutes. Um, thanks for sharing it with us. You've been listening to Robert Walter on SyncBook Radio, a production of thesyncbook.com. More information about the work of the Joseph Campbell Foundation can be found at jcf.org. More information about the SyncBook, our guests, or to check out past shows, describe the podcast via iTunes, please be sure and visit our website at 42minutes.com. If you'd like to support the show, we urge you to become a donor. You'll find the donation links under each episode on the website. Thank you so much, and have a wonderful Tuesday. Thank you, sir. Quite welcome.